This is the Baymont Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we are continuing our journey through the Gospel of John with the wedding at Cana and the clearing of the temple courts. Yes, indeed. I don't really have anything to get us started. I think we just jump right in. How about you read us the story? Uh, we got two stories today. It's going to get us through the second chapter of John. Uh, first one's on a wedding. Second one is on about a temple. Maybe they're connected. We'll find out by the time we're done. Give us the first one, Brent. All right, straight to the text. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. I'm sure that's a translation. Um, is that is that important? I'm sure the NET would tell you. 15 liters. They completely translated away in the NIV, even in the footnote. Uh, the Greek says two or three metrates. Okay. I don't know. There's a very long footnote, which I'm not going to read live on the podcast, but something to look into potentially if you're interested. There you go. Uh, apparently, I'm the kind of person who would be interested because I just went on that huge tangent about it. Um, anyway, Jesus said to his servants, fill the water, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. All right. Now, what I want to do here is just kind of riff on this story for a while. And and I, I'm going to give some credit here um, to just kind of a random friend of mine that is one of my best friends from growing up. Um, he actually leads a Baymaw group down in the Boise, Idaho area. And... Um, I still say down as if I'm up in Moscow down, you know, down in Boise down. And it's like the, it's like the, uh, it's like the Jerusalem up and down. I'm now in Cincinnati. So you come up to Cincinnati and everywhere else is down. <laughs> no, that's, that's horrible. That's horrible. Anyway, I got a, I got a good buddy of mine. Um, his name is Andrew Miller and he leads one of our Bay Ma groups in Boise. And, um, and and me and him were were just kind of like discussing. I had some thoughts, and he had he had some really good thoughts that we just kind of brought to a conversation one day, and we just started talking about this, and then we kept talking about it, and then he busted out a Google Doc, uh, which I I pulled out from uh, the the cyberspace, and uh, I'm totally riffing off of a bunch of his notes. So I got to give him a ton of credit. We a lot of this we crafted together, but many of these notes are are his, and so Andrew. Way to go, sir. Uh, it was it was fun to pull this out and review it. But here here's some thoughts that we had as we just kind of uh, riffed on that that day. Um, 
in the backyard around a good cigar, which is always the best way to have Bible conversation, by the way. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm sure I'm going to get emails about that, <laughs> both good and bad. I'm going to get hate mail and like, oh, let me talk to you about that. Okay, here we go. Send your hate mail to me. I'll commiserate. <laughs> Send your love to Marty. You okay. Uh, and I don't like, it's not a crazy problem, everybody. I have a, I have the occasional cigar. Calm down. Okay. <laughs> all right. So so let's talk context. First of all, where is this wedding taking place at, Brent? Cana of Galilee. Cana of Galilee. So let's talk about Cana. Now, there's a lot of things we don't know and maybe some things that we can maybe assume. We got to always be careful of that. Academically, you really can't do any of that, but... One, I'm trying to make some maybe some good educated guesses and assumptions here. So a couple of places uh, for Cana and and maybe even more that we don't even know of. There's a traditional location for Cana today. It sits about uh, three miles outside of Nazareth. Um, there there are some churches there that claim that traditionally that is the right Cana. There's really no scholarship to back that up. It's probably not the place at all probably not the place. And then then there's a place about nine miles away from Nazareth, uh, more to the north. And um, it, it the, the archaeological dig is actually called Kir, Kirbet, uh, Kana, Kirbet Kana. And it, it is probably, it, if there is one that we know about, that is much more likely the location. It actually sits more at what would be the base of Mount Carmel, which may or may not be interesting or or a, or a really valuable connection here, but that that dig they found a lot of Roman it, about first second century. It is definitely a Roman city and beyond. They did find underneath those ruins what they think might be a Jewish synagogue. Um, they're not really sure, uh, which would make sense. So so here's the thing that I've always assumed with a name like Kana and names are always. I mean, L is really good at this. She's she's told us I believe more than once that names are tricky. Um, I know I, I've learned that through my Hebrew class that I'm taking with her. Like names are just weird. They're always kind of full of conjecture and assumptions, and it's not usually a clean Hebrew word. And so everybody kind of debates what the name is truly referencing. Some of them are easier than others. But I mean, Kana, can you remember us ever talking about Kana, Brent? Uh, is that a zealot thing? Yeah, it was the, it's literally the word for zeal. Kana in the Hebrew is zeal. There we and go. the the Kanaim were the, the zealots. The zealot, the zealous ones, and so one very prominent theory that happens to be my own um, is, and again based on somewhat educated speculation, is that Kana would have been a, a, a zealot village, a zealot compound, uh, compound similar to say Gamla or any of those other places. That um, now again, what do we know? It would make sense that if it was a zealot compound, that Rome would have come in crushed it during the revolt or sometime in the first century and built a nice Roman city in its place. That was a very common practice for them um, to take the the rebels and the people that stood against them to crush them and then just turn that, turn that village, turn that city, turn that whatever into this is now ours. Thank you very much. And we'll put our Hellenism right on top of what once was yours. So it's very, very possible here that we're at a, we're at a, we're at a zealot wedding, which you probably want to let's link the zealot episode just to remind ourselves of who the zealots were. Um, if that is relevant here, which leads to all kinds of questions, but I'll get to that in a moment. So, first verse of John chapter uh, two talks about this wedding being on which day, Brent? Uh, the third day. The third day, which can be a reference to 
Uh, some people have pointed out John's reference to days being reference to creation. And yet, on a very practical sense, uh, we actually talked about this, I believe, way back in session one. But I talk about it elsewhere, and everybody always laughs because I think they think I'm being funny, and I'm not being funny. So when we were going through uh, Genesis 1, there was one of the days that wasn't even blessed. Do you remember which day that was, Brent? Mm, yes, it was. Well, let's see. It was the second day? The second day. And yet there are seven blessings. There are seven it was goods. And and so what that means is that there's some day that gets a second blessing because ble- day two doesn't. And if you're like, what? Go back and check it. Day two is never called good. And yet day three is called good twice. And so it became a Jewish tradition that weddings would happen on Tuesdays, the third day of the week, because that was the day of double blessing. So you see here a wedding happening on the doubly blessed day of Tuesday. It's the third day, and here we are finding ourselves at a wedding. Uh, Very next verse, uh, Jesus and his mom and family have been invited to the wedding, which raises all kinds of questions. If Cana Man, I just wish we knew the backstory. Don't you, Brent? Yeah, and I'm, I've been looking at the NAT footnotes, of course, and uh, apparently among the biblical authors, John is the only one who ever talks about the place. Right. And I guess Josephus mentions it in one of his writings um, that he stayed there, but there's not a whole lot of um, references to this location at all. So, and and again, it's it's kind of you know you, you don't you're kind of making speculative leaps. But if Josephus stayed there, Josephus was a part of the Zealots. That's what his whole record is about, the story of his life. So it would make sense that he stays. It doesn't have to be. He's probably stayed in a lot of places that weren't Zealot cities or villages or compounds. But golly, it would make sense. But nevertheless, if it is, I, I wish I knew. I just wish I knew. Mary and Joseph and their backstory. Like it could have been so complicated. And right now we're all wasting time because the Bible doesn't tell us. And so everything Marty is doing now is just pure speculation. And yet I love to have fun speculating because I just can't pin Mary and Joseph down. I can't figure out who they were. What was, were they Herodians? Because Joseph was a tecton, which means a builder, which is typically a stonemason. They would have been trained to work with lumber. But lumber wasn't the building material of choice. It was usually always stone. Right outside of Nazareth, right between Nazareth and Zippori, there is an ancient stone quarry that was owned by Herod uh, Antipas and was used for uh, all of his building projects. So the like, and again, it's a leap. It's a, an assumption, but it's an educated one that you would expect Joseph to have worked in the stone quarry just outside of Nazareth, just in between Nazareth. Does that mean that he was Herodian? If he was Herodian, you would have expected him to live in Zippori. Does the fact he lived in Nazareth mean he wasn't Herodian but was trying to make a living? Were they still living as social outcasts here? Were they – I mean, obviously we, obviously we know that Jesus has family connected to the priestly, like Zechariah and John the Baptist. We we know that there's family connections to the pre like which one of the five groups does Jesus like come from where does his family align with did did Joseph align as a Herodian but then when he died like he's obviously gone in the story so so later is Mary more aligned with a Hasidim zealot worldview like I just wish I just wish I knew are are they taking like any friendships and invitations because Ever since their marriage and this questionable birth, they've been social outcasts. Man, I just wish I knew like what, what kind of leanings Jesus 
quotes theater, like he's quoting plays in his teachings. Does does that mean Jesus was did he was he raised in a more Herodian? I just can't pin it down, Brent. If he was raised Herodian, why is he going to a zealot wedding? Like I, it's just so interesting. And obviously, any of these things could be bad assumptions. But isn't it fun? Do you find this fun? I don't know. I do. Yeah, I love it. And we could definitely talk about it for days on end. And <laughs> actually, I wanted to point out we have talked about this story before when we talked about season one of the Chosen. So. Uh, episode 224, I think we're taking a little bit different angle. And obviously, we're going through the text specifically, um, verse by verse. So we're going to hit a lot of different stuff. But we have talked about this story before. And here we are with plenty of more thoughts. So yes, there's there's endless um, fun and speculation and um, references in the text and Josephus and like, there's so many things to look into. So uh, yeah, I'm I'm right there with you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And 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 if it was if it is a zealot context, can you remember who some of their poster like who were their who were their heroes? Who were who were the zealot heroes, Brent Billings, in in that world? Oh, what was that guy? Um Judah the Hammer or whatever? Okay, sure. Yeah, uh, absolutely. In fact, he was he was actually their literal hero and leader at the beginning of the mood the movement. Judah Judah Maccabee. Um the story of Hanukkah and that whole that whole thing. Absolutely. What about biblical characters in the Old Testament? Mm. Uh well, like Elijah probably. Okay, Pinhas would have been another one. Uh Phineas we often say, the one who stabbed the couple to the pinned them to the ground cuz you know and zeal, kana, there's that word kana, zeal for his house. Zeal for my house consumed him. I and God 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 apparently had a positive word because he's like, at least somebody cared about what was happening in my holy house. I, that raises a whole lot of other questions. I get that. But that was their, I mean, that was one of their poster stories for the zealots. This idea of somebody rising up to stand for God's righteousness. That was that was Pinhas or or Elijah is another one of those people who stood for God's holiness and called out Ahab and set up a contest on top of Mount Carmel and and wait a minute where did we say that Kenas sat at the bottom of which mountain Brent Mount Carmel man it just seems like there's a lot of things kind of aligning that's kind of weird anyway uh, let's see here let's let's uh, let's keep going verse uh, the verses that follow <laughs> verse three. <laughs> Uh, let's see here. They run out of wine. Verse four, Jesus says, uh, you know, Mary comes to him. They've run out of wine. Jesus says, what, what does this have to do with me? And and then he says this phrase, my hour has not yet come. And yet the first time that phrase is used, it's actually in the inverse. It's my hour has come, but the very similar phrase, just from the positive to the negative. And the first time that phrase is used, it seems like Jesus could be quoting it. Take me back to the, the first time that phrase is used, uh, Brent, to Genesis. Where does that show up? Give me the verse. Now, Levon had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel, Raquel, man, okay, how am I doing this? But Raquel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Uh, oh, gee. Yaakov was in love with Raquel. Uh, I, I cannot do this, Marty. I can't switch back and forth. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Levon said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Levon, 
Give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to make love to her. Okay. My time has come. My time is complete. My time is here. Same phrase Jesus would have uttered in Hebrew, only in the opposite. Jesus says, my time has not come. And yet, what is the context of the story that he's lifting that phrase, that first mentioned phrase out of? It's context of a, of a what back with Jacob? Of a wedding. Of a wedding. And Jacob is like, hey, I want to get married. And here's Jesus at a wedding saying like, hey, my time hasn't come. To which Mary, and I love this, because we know from the synoptic gospels that Mary is a woman of the text. Because do you know what the Magnificat is, Brent? It's that section where Mary kind of sings a song in the Christmas story. You know, that, right. you know what I'm talking about? Yep. That, that Magnificat, Luke, I believe it is, Gospel of Luke, right. that Magnificat is full of just remazim, just reference after reference after reference after reference. She has this brilliant song. I don't know how long she spent writing it, but this is a woman who knows her Bible. And so Jesus is like, ah, here I am at a wedding. No, this is not what I want to do. I am not Jacob. Like, I, no, my time has not yet come. And she responds with what phrase, Brent? Do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you, which is a phrase that is also lifted right out of Genesis. Give me Genesis 41, verse 55. Uh, let, me, let me start back at the beginning of the paragraph there. The seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt, there was food. When all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. Then Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, go to Joseph and do what he tells you. Do whatever he tells you, which I love this because if there's kind of a textual sparring match here, I just love the fact that Jesus and his mom might be having like a mother-son riff in the Bible. It's just awesome. Like they're using biblical text to be like, I don't want to. She's like, you're going to do it because um, she 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 responds to his textual play with one of her own. He's like, this isn't the wedding I want. And she's like, well, if you don't forgive your brothers, and she quotes Joseph because this Joseph is going to be the story of forgiveness. I, I, I kind of see her like kind of rolling her eyes, turning and saying to the servants kind of purposely loudly so Jesus can hear, here's a remez for you. Consider this, Jesus, as she walks out, like, consider what Joseph was called to as you sit here saying, you don't want to be married to this. This isn't what you want. And I'm telling you that God has has in mind the restoration of all his people, including these zealots, which I find interesting. The very next thing we're told is about these water jars, right? Water jars. Now tell me, is there anywhere that you can remember ever seeing water jars, Brent? Um, um, Rebecca and camels and... No jars there, but it's a good reference. Somebody had oh, not, a bunch of jars. water jars. Okay. Yeah. Somebody had water jars. They filled up jars, filled them to the brim, and then they... In this story, they poured them out over something. Well, I guess if we're going by location, perhaps an Elijah story. Then. Uh, oh, it's in the text. Give me, uh, give me the King's reference that we've got there. Give me this Elijah story. Um, First Kings eighteen. It looks like. Uh, then Elijah said to all the people, "Come here to me." They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took. 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it, large enough to hold two sayas of seed. 
He arranged the wood, cut the bowl into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. And I just noticed there, he he has four jars and he has to do it three times, so 12 total jar fillings. Yep, absolutely. Twelve total jar fillings. There's six in the John story, so there's not a great total parallel. And yet it's this one story where we're told about these stone jars and being filled up with water, and then something happens. Uh, Andrew made the point that when you poured you know, this water over the bowl and the, this cut-up sacrifice, the water would have turned red by the time it filled up the trench looking like wine. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, 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 sure. Um, but man— <laughs> Oh, oh. A- Andrew— in Boise, not yes, uh, biblical yeah. character. Not, not like, biblical, Andrew. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. My friend, <laughs> my buddy. Um, so anyway, uh, it it makes boy, which is just a stunning remez. If you're at the wedding of a bunch of zealots, I mean, what kind of wine are they going to want? Well, they're going to want the wine of Elijah's cup. They're going to want the wine of God's fury. They're going to want the wine of. And, and so Jesus steps into this story, and so here are some notes that I have. Um. Here are some notes that Andrew has, actually, uh, which I, I really like. That maybe we maybe we kind of came up with these notes together. I, I don't know if he wants to take full credit or not, but I'll leave that up to him. He he has these notes. He says uh, his original view of this story: uh, water jars turn to wine. Elijah turns water into blood. Jesus makes a stark contrast that he comes in the spirit of Elijah, yet he comes to bring abundance. Three years of no rain. The water used in soaking is to signify that the rain is to come. Enter Jesus with the coming of the rain. Okay, that's cool. Andrew says, kind of the next step, view number two, kind of the second evolution or the second possible way of viewing all these variables. Jesus and his mother are going to have a textual sparring match that rivals some of the great sages. And the result is that Jesus needs to see that he's going to have to forgive and teach his brothers, the zealots, even the zealots, even though they might miss the boat there's still an invitation to that part of the family as well. And as John tells it, he hasn't invited any of any zealot disciples yet in the John narrative. He's invited Pharisees. He's invited Peter and Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel. In the John narrative, he hasn't even invited any zealots. I wonder, maybe, I, I mean, I don't know. I wonder if this is one of the moments, this little exchange with mom, if he goes, oh, all right, well, I'm going to invite some some zealots to the table. Uh, or view number three, um, Jesus is upset with his mom because he doesn't want to marry the zealots. This isn't the wife he wants, in reference to maybe maybe a Leah character. But, understand, but Jesus now, Mary understands, Jesus understands that this might be the remnant that God is, is kind of preserving for him. That that might be the the people, the zealots of Cana that he is supposed to love and cherish, propose to, marry. Uh, Jesus then does marry these two wives to himself, kind of all throughout the narrative. You're going to have these Judeans and these two groups that are split and torn. Is Jesus Jews and Gentiles all throughout John? Two groups, two groups, two groups. They're divided. Those who believe and those who don't believe. Those who this and those who that. Those, is this kind of Jesus bringing these families together? 
I also find this interesting because uh, last episode, Brent, we ended uh, with the story of Nathaniel sitting under the fig tree, right? And Jesus referenced which character at the very end of that passage? Which Genesis character? Jacob. And and which story? Uh, wrestling with God, the well, specifically the dream. Right, and uh, not the wrestling. The wrestling comes that. later. So this is the, the latter, the dream, right? Okay, so the wrestling happens after on his way to meet Esau. I guess I guess I look at that as one story, but yeah. Right, so the wrestling's a separate story. The wrestling oh. happens after Laban. The oh. dream happens on his way to Laban. Yeah, yeah. So the very next story... Okay, okay, I got that mixed up, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the very next story after the Jacob's Ladder is actually the story of Laban and Leah and Rachel. By the way, what is the next story in John? We haven't read it yet, but what's the next story we're going to talk about, Brent? He goes to the temple and clears everything out. Interesting, because what was the what was the place that John called not John, excuse me. What was what did, what was the name that Jacob gave to the place where he had his dream? Do you remember? Oh, uh, clearly I don't remember this story well enough because I've got a the whole timeline of it conflated. So I cannot, okay. I cannot give you an answer. That's okay. He named it Bethel or House of God. It's interesting that in Jewish Midrash, they often talked about there being a temple for every single one of the patriarchs. They said the first temple was the temp- was Abraham's temple. The second temple, the Midrash said, was Isaac's temple. And, and this is a little bit more Zionistic for my taste. I, I don't, I'm not actually promoting this teaching at all. Anybody that has gotten here and to session six hopefully is not surprised that my eschatology does not include a Zionistic understanding of a third temple being built. But the, in the rabbinic era, they said there must be, an, there must be an, uh, a temple for Jacob. A te- and yet here's John talking about Jacob, making references in the next story about Jesus saying, well, this temple is, here's the Jacob temple, John says. The last temple you're waiting for, that last patriarch temple, is going to be fulfilled in Jesus and his body. I just find that whole thing just absolutely fascinating. And I'm sure somebody with a whole lot more letters after their name could do a much better job cleaning that up. But I just find this whole thing just wonderfully delicious, but nevertheless. Anything to add before we move on to the next story? I don't think so. We're already talking about the next story, so let's let's do it. <laughs> let's just go right into that. Read, read that puppy. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Very interesting reference, if I do say so myself in the very next story, but I digress. Uh, The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. I like the idea of of the whichever Jews are just kind of like standing by watching watching the chaos unfold. And then when he's done, they're like, So how how do you prove your authority to do what you just did (laughs) before we start cleaning it up? (laughs) Which actually, before we even finish up the passage, uh, is a great segue to something that's super important. And we're going to 
pointed out at some point in our study of John, so why not now? Whenever John has the word Jews, it's really problematic. I think we've referenced before, there's a huge scholastic conversation about the Greek word iduai and how you're supposed to translate that. Our anti-Semitic kind of supersessionistic theology has always led us to just translate it Jews. Oh, those silly Jews, those stupid Jews, Uduai, just the Jews. The problem is, is like in books like Acts, it becomes unbelievably clear that you can't use the word just as Jews because some Jews do believe and other Jews don't. And so the references have to make sense. Well, the term Uduai probably is best understood, according to many scholars that I agree with, as Judeans. It's not just Jews. It is a particular part of Judaism. It is the Judean party, which always would have stood against this Galilean ministry. They stood against the Christian message and the inclusion of Gentiles. They stood against, in the New Testament, this would have been the party of the circumcision, the circumcision party of the book of Galatians. Like That's the Judeans. And so who is it that leads the, 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 the Judeans? Who do you suppose is, would be the leader of the Judean movement, Brent? You're in the South. You're not in the North. You're not where the Hasidim are. So who would the Judean mindset be typically represented by? The priests. Absolutely. Now, not just the priests, but that is the worldview. That's the understanding, the, the Sadducee, Herodian. That's the Judean world. And over against the Galilean world of the Pharisees and the Hasidim and the Zealots. So you have these two worlds that are always competing. So when you read Jews in John, I'm of the mind that almost always I should be hearing that through the lens of Judeans, not just Jews. Those silly Jews. I can't believe the Jews rejected Jesus. The Jews came to him. The Jews, the Jews. No, this is the Judeans came to him. The Judeans asked him as he stood in their temple, chasing everyone out. Just like you said, Brent, um, where do you get the authority, you stinky little Galilean, to come in here and do this? Uh, that That's the – anyway, great great grab as you're passing that I thought I would stop with. Yeah, the NET does a little better. It translates it Jewish leaders. And then yeah, thank on, you. On, yeah. on its footnote, it says, or the Jewish authorities. But then it kind of steps back into the mess, and it says the Greek literally says the Jews. But then it goes on in New Testament usage, the term – uh, Edui uh, may refer to the entire Jewish people, the residents of Jerusalem and surrounding territory, which that would be Judeans, the authorities in Jerusalem, or merely those who were hostile to Jesus. And then it says here the author refers to the authorities or leaders in Jerusalem, um, which, you know. Yeah. Uh, well, let me give you the scholarly article for this, okay? Um, if you were to get your hands on, I don't know if I would buy the whole thing just for this article, but maybe if you had a library, if you were to get uh, Oxford published what was called the Jewish Annotated New Testament, the Jewish Annotated New Testament, it's uh, our NRSV translation. It's got some footnotes that are kind of hit or miss. They're either brilliant or they're garbage. Uh, the articles in the back are about the same, 50-50. I feel like they're either garbage and I completely disagree with them or they're excellent. Um, but it comes from Jewish scholarship and Jewish minds that are contributing to the footnotes and the articles here. And one of the articles in the back, which is just phenomenal, was on the usage of eduai. And I, I would, I would, I'm probably saying that word all wrong. All of our Greek scholars and our couple <laughs> Greek professors that listen to this podcast are probably like, "Would you please quit saying that word?" Just well, quit. at least you've taken a Greek class, so I yes, we won't talk about my Greek class or my Greek <laughs> grade. Nevertheless. <laughs> Um, anyway, so there you go. Uh, yes, I think that is 
I think that's what I'm uh, going to leave that with. Let's finish out the passage. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. A little more time travel for John. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Ah, there's this God goggles. He knew what was in each person. Or, nevertheless, I digress. Some people will say, there you go. (laughs) There you go, Marty. That's proof. It's proof that he uses God goggles. There's probably a few more ways you can read that, but I'll leave that up to you and quit making a big deal about that. Uh, Let's see here. So interesting uh, rearrangement of things, because the synoptics obviously put the story of what we call the cleansing of the temple where, Brent? Uh, right right at the end, right right when he comes into Jerusalem. Yeah, and obviously it sparks an entire week that gets him killed. Like It's a pretty big deal to just walk into Jerusalem, stand in the, you know, the courtyard of the Sadducees and the chief priests and this corrupt mafia, and, and start over, overturning tables. Like, that'll get you killed. And so either, either John has uh, just simply placed this story in a completely different place chronologically because— He's working with the motifs we were talking about with Jacob or the patriarchs, or he's working with an Exodus time, a Torah timeline where he's working with Genesis and then Exodus. Like he could be doing a lot of things here and just simply moving the story, or some have even suggested maybe we even have two cleansing cleansings uh, of the temple. You have one that happened at the end of his ministry and one that happened at the very beginning here. It, it's, it's hard to imagine that he could have cleansed the temple and gotten away with it. Um, especially around any kind of festival or holiday time. <laughs> yeah. But I also have, you know, something was once shared with me that I thought was just outlandish when I first heard it. I thought it was the most ridiculous thing in the world. Apparently there's a reference in some piece of Jewish Midrash or some tractate or Targum or some something out there um, where it speaks of a, a rabbi that there's that the phrase to make a whip with cords is actually a phrase that is used elsewhere to mean he took his talit, his tassels, and he takes his tassels and he kind of winds them together and then kind of, he doesn't whip anybody with them. He shakes them in their face and just kind of, and what I find interesting here is in John, I'm missing the personal violence that the synoptic uh, accounts have. Like, in the synoptic accounts, there's a whole lot more angry Jesus. The, the language seems to suggest a physical driving out of the people. And here, we're told that he drives the people out, but not with this same sense of physical thrust. Um, he drives the animals out. He does overturn tables, according to John here. But I, I've wondered if there were two cleansings, if this one was much less publicly intrusive, much less violent. I wonder if this first time that he came through, if there was two cleansings, if he just shook those zitziot, his tassels in people's faces and said, you are not being obedient, and just kept doing it, just wouldn't leave them alone until they just left. Like, just kept making an awkward enough scene that they all kind of packed up and went home. And then later in his ministry, they all kind of came back, and he's like, all right, 
That's it. Now you can say to me like, well, Marty, that feels like a whole lot of just crazy gymnastics. And I'm with you. Maybe it is. However, one of the other motifs that John seems to be working with is, is a direct, like he's obviously making Genesis parallels. But other authors have pointed out he's obviously making deliberate Leviticus parallels, which, by the way, blows my mind. I said this in the John episode in session three. I can't get my head around how much of this stuff did John intentionally do? How much of it was he conscious of? How much of it just kind of came from God behind the scenes with a wink and a nudge and an elbow? You know, like I, I, man, there is a lot going on in John. But if John is making Leviticus references, Go back and and look at uh, the Leviticus references where it talks about cleansing a house from mold. Because you go to the house and you have to clear the house first. You get you, if a house has mold in it, you get in there, you clear the whole house, you clean it, you take off the plaster, you do all the stuff, you make sure that you get all the mold out, and then you leave it, and then you come back two weeks later to see if the mold has returned. If the mold has returned, you tear the house down. If the if the mold hasn't returned, you can stay there. Now, tell me that is not a wicked awesome play, Brent Billings. If mm. if Jesus shows up here and says, I, I see some mold, let's get it out of here, and I'm going to give you a chance to repent. I think of the synoptic reference. Don't cut down the fig tree now. Give it another year. See if it produces fruit. If it doesn't produce fruit, then come cut it down. I wonder if he chases – I don't know if he literally does this historically. I'm just saying I wonder if John is making a play, and maybe somebody says, well, why doesn't he talk about the second cleansing in his own gospel then? That's a good point. I don't know. But I just wonder at times if John is making this play of, I see some mold. I'm going to clear the house. I'm going to see if it – I'm going to clean it up. I'm going to see if it comes back. If it comes back, we got to tear the house down. And, of course, what happens in Jewish history? The house – the the Beit El really truly does uh, obviously get destroyed by the Romans, um, and Jesus foretells that. And man, it would just be really interesting if Jesus's prophetic awareness of what was coming uh, again wasn't coming because of his god goggles, but coming much more in an Elijah like an Elijah sense. He knows his text obviously as Jesus, and he knows what the text says. So speculation, ton of it. Uh, but I give that to you for uh, wrestling matches. Anything you want to add to that, Brent? Nope. I just I love I love uh, looking at all these different possibilities and considering um, what God's doing through it. So much fun. All right. Well, that'll do it for this episode. And John, too, we did we did a whole chapter in one episode. Marty, we're cooking, cooking. I'm sure we will uh, <laughs> spread that out a little bit um, as as time goes on so i'm sure some of the other teachers will for sure i don't know about me i just love to just crank through the material <laughs> well i do think we're pretty much going to be talking about john for most of the calendar year so i'm betting so plenty more to come for sure yep all right well if you want to get a hold of marty you can find him on twitter at marty solomon i'm at eibcb and you can find more details about the show at baymontdeception.com uh, go check out those previous episodes if you need a refresher on zealots or if you want to our other conversation about the the wedding at Cana uh, when we talked about the chosen uh, lots of stuff to dig into and uh, so thanks for joining us on the Bama podcast we'll talk to you again soon <laughs>